Hello and welcome to The Muslims Are Coming, your topical digest on current affairs, sizzling political issues and some silly stuff. With me, Ash, and my chest-bearing, hoofy-hugging buddy, Billy Bazooka! Good day, sir. How are you, Bills? I'm very good, thank you. Great. On this week's show, we'll be discussing why Theresa May loves talking Yorkshire puddings, why, strictly speaking, immigrants aren't really cockroaches, and whether anybody actually reads election manifestos. office strategy to tackle non-violent extremism has been discreetly shelved after Liberal Democrats in the coalition government blocked the proposals as too hardline and an affront to civil liberties. A leaked copy of the 28-page report seen by the Observer newspaper reveals a series of measures designed to counter extremism, including reduced benefits for people who struggle to speak English, training for Job Centre Plus staff so that they can spy on people considered vulnerable to extremism, and banning individuals from entering the UK if they are judged to have undermined British values. It is understood that senior Lib Dems refused to approve the strategy, despite promises by the Home Office that it would be published before the general election. Now, this is really interesting. I mean, I never knew that language was so important to people, especially in London, where even if you've got the Ebola virus and you're staring death in the face, when someone asks you how you are, the correct answer is, yeah, I'm right. (laughs) Well, I think it's just mean-spirited, Billy. You can't just talk to people because you feel like it. It's like putting toothpaste back in the tube, Ash. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But back to this um, back to this Theresa May story. She's basically suggesting that if you have a difficulty speaking English, mm. it would make it more difficult for you to gain a visa. And also, there are reduced welfare benefits for people who have a problem speaking English. So mm. this is clearly going to affect those people who struggle with the English language. So I guess my question is, how are Geordies going to cope with these new laws? <laughs> I just like to uh, put it out there to all our Geordie listeners. Billy is joking. He's very well versed at Geordie language. I mean, I, I'm joking, but at the same time, I'm not. Not that he has anything interesting to say anyway, but sometimes I think Alan Shearer is speaking in tongues. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, what's her name? That Geordie, the Geordie person who was in Girls Aloud? Cheryl Cole. That's it. Tweedy, no? Yeah, don't act like you don't know. No, no, I, yeah, she, she she slipped my mind. I do know her. She's yeah. quite pretty, isn't she? Well. Uh, just for, for the sake of our viewers, <laughs> Billy is actually looking like a blushing schoolgirl right now. Yeah, so she's quite difficult to understand. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that Paul Gascoigne. Have you ever heard that Paul Gascoigne music video? <laughs> what, that, that fog in the Tide. A fog on the Tide. <laughs> Mate, great track, but what the f*** is he talking about? <laughs> It could be it could be a Eurovision Song Contest entry for Latvia, for all I know. But, I mean, basically, Ash, let, let's go back to the story now. They're basically reducing Britishness to language, yeah. isn't it? Well, first of all, the, I, I think a lot of this is um, uh, is pie in the sky and, and based on fantasy. So I've got this, uh, this stat from the 2011 National Census. Go for it. And according to that, only 1.7% of the English and Welsh population uh, speak English not well or not at all. I'm probably within that because <laughs> yeah. my vocabulary is like 
whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So really, when we when we look at, I mean, it's very difficult to argue against the census um, because that that goes to everyone in the country, and you know, it's 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 pretty uh, unequivocal, isn't it? So on that level, it seems that we don't have an issue with people not speaking English properly, mm. unless all these immigrants have come in from 2011 and you know completely changed the the the, the fabric of British society. Yeah, which of course some people do argue. Yeah, right. So what do you think is behind all of this then? Well, I, th- I think that, you know, this topic always emerges uh, when there is a sort of a perceived crisis in the public sphere. Uh, so in recent times, we can look at the, the Bradford riots, we can look at 7-7, can look at the time when uh, restrictions on Bulgarians and Hungarians to enter the UK were lifted, even in the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo affair. In each, each one of these cases, there was a perceived threat to our value systems, whatever they mean, uh, be they the presence of strange religious beliefs, political ideologies, or the emergence of thieving welfare parasites in our midst and I, and I think that's what I think I think it's something to do with whenever there is a lack of confidence in who we are as a nation conversations about British identity comes into vogue but I mean is it just me Asher does or as time goes by does Theresa May look more and more like an astronaut <laughs> <laughs> she does make spacesuits. It does. I mean, it's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? I mean, it makes me think, do the Tories know something that we don't? I mean, mm. is there some sort of space station contingency plan for when the Earth implodes under the weight of David Cameron's smugness? Because, <laughs> I mean, did you see, talking about spacesuits, did you see her outfit when she was talking to the policeman? No, I, mean, I, the, didn't, I didn't. No, know. I mean, the only thing that was missing was a countdown before she activates this hidden jetpack. And then flies off. And then in one defiant gesture, she just flips both middle fingers at us condemned peasants on Earth. Because I mean, if there was a plan to save all the sort of important people on the planet, yeah. me and you would be screwed, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll take these microphones before they, they give us any... Yeah, exactly. We're like, oh, we have a liberal arts degree. No one cares. <laughs> But I would like to say, going back to the point about, you know, uh, British values and everything, Yeah, it, it, it occurs to me that they always seem to sort of pop up when, you know, there's, there's a couple of common trends behind them. Yeah. First of all, they tend to pop up when uh, during times of in- economic insecurity. Historically, that's, that seems to be the case. Uh, and secondly, they're designed to indulge the fears of the majority group. Yeah. So obviously, when you start talking about English language, who's going to feel all pumped up about it? All those people who consider themselves English, that can speak the language, regardless of the fact that, you know, some of them might have a vocabulary of four and probably are not very good at English compared to 99% of immigrants coming Absolutely. in. But that's what it does. It, it sort of pumps up the home host majority group. Which is um, ridiculous, by yeah. the way, because I've been reproached by many a traffic warden <laughs> who have almost Shakespearean English. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think that, that's what it does immediately, doesn't it? Because you sort of, you know, people who are here and have been here for generations have a claim on the language. Yeah. So when you say this sort of thing, when you make this sort of rhetoric about language all of a sudden those people are are given confidence you know mm. it's a whole sort of li- little Englander phenomenon yeah. you know and I think that by insisting on the sort of recalibration of British values we renew a sense of national pride and belonging at the same time allying fears of an imminent takeover by the you know the, the mythic uh, felonious fundamentalist gypsy family yeah. living next door <laughs> Now, all the major political parties released their election manifestos this week. As usual, they've all outlined their plans on key issues such as tax, housing, pensions, pay and bills. For anyone who hasn't read through a manifesto, don't. They are very, 
very boring. And the effort is even further crushed by the fact that there is a little voice inside your head repeatedly heeding you to take no notice to all the promises and pledges that are never kept. Like a gambler father in the week preceding his child's birthday. In fact, the whole thing is just just a huge (laughs) swindle designed to pump up a perpetually gullible, repeat-offending public and to give something to politicians and activists to posture over during the obligatory campaign trail. Did you have a, an opportunity to uh, to have a look at one of these, Billy? I and, did. Uh, well, did, did anyone woo you? Well, it's been a while since anyone has wooed me. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, these days, choosing a politician is like choosing which kind of tropical disease you want to die from. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really understand what the difference is between them anymore. I mean, the only manifesto that I can relate to is when I've got a hole in my sock. Hey. <laughs> I'll let that one marinate. Yes. For a while. Yes, it was a it was a good one. It was a good one. But I think we should have some sort of Hunger Games scenario, maybe. Because, I mean, it is really, really boring, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, maybe we should lock all of the candidates in a room with Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And then just see who comes out alive. I mean, my money's on Ed Miliband, Ash. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, they don't call him Red Ed for nothing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, people like Jeremy Paxman think he's this sort of North London geek. Which is interesting, actually, because I don't really know how does Jeremy Paxman see himself. <laughs> I mean, it's hardly. I mean, it's hardly what Charlie Sheen. Yeah, exactly. Jeremy Paxman. I mean, I know we're like we're sidestepping the discussion a little bit. Yeah. Because all he, he's got this whole thing about being a contrarian, hasn't he? Yeah. Like whatever you say, Bill, he'll just say the opposite thing, and he's made a career out of it. Yeah. But that's so easy and rubbish. Most Let, of the time. Let's do a fake interview. Eh? I'll be Jeremy Paxman. All right. You can be yourself. All right. Let's just imagine one day that we actually get more than 20 listeners yeah. <laughs> this is for our 20 though we must be loyal to the 20 this is yeah. for you this is for you so ash it's great to have you on the show what do you think about the current election manifesto situation well jeremy well, I, I mean so what you're trying to say ash is that you're actually pro isis no but i came here to discuss yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show ash thanks for the conversation anyway going back to the main issue so i mean let's talk about the nhs for example i mean what's going on with that well that's re- that actually it's very interesting that you should mention that because i mean i had a i had a, a dip in and out of all the manifestos as i mentioned and i couldn't help notice that the conservatives pledged to what was it they put in two billion pounds yeah, two billion. That's right. Uh, into the NHS for frontline services. Yeah, yeah, and th- and then I think Labour trumped them, didn't they? Yeah, with two they and did. a half billion. Two point five billion. Yeah, and then. UKIP stormed in with, with a pledge of three billion pounds. Wow. I mean, that, it just reminds me of when we were back at school, Ash. Yeah. When you were like, oh, yeah, my dad's going to beat your dad up. And yeah. then the other person's like, oh, yeah, well, my dad's going to beat your dad up infinity. Yeah. <laughs> my dad's going to batter your dad infinity plus one. Turn around, touch the ground, Bugsy not included. <laughs> I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And these are the people that are running our country. Yeah, I mean, why do you think? Why do you think that's the case? I mean, everyone gets excited by things like the manifestos, but in my opinion, it's a bit like when when it snows in London. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everyone is in the beginning, everyone's excited, but then after a few hours, it just turns into this massive pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got to deal with yeah but I don't know I, I would you know I'll take you up on the on the point that people are excited about manifestos yeah 
I don't think they are. The people who do get excited about them are journalists trying yeah. to cover the story and, and the activists themselves. So these poor canvassers that are walking around knocking on people's doors. Yeah, who are about as welcome as a fart in an <laughs> elevator. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Nobody wants them. The only people that want to talk to activists are the kind of people that have prepared some sort of argument weeks in advance. Yeah. And they just cannot wait for them but to I get through the door. I have to say that I am guilty of that. <laughs> I, I can't wait for the Tories to come and knock on my door. Honestly, genuinely, I can't wait. And I've been holding out for the Lib Dems this year as well. Really? But it's true. I have to say I am guilty for wanting them to come around this year. But the the, the wider point still stands that no normal, ordinary person in the UK going about his or her business has any interest in these manifestos. And yet we're still talking about them. Okay, for our hot topic this week, we're going to be discussing the subject of immigration. The general elections are coming up, and along with the economy and the NHS, immigration is dominating the agenda for all parties. Unlike the other issues, however, all the main parties seem to be united on the immigration front. Britain, it seems, is full. We are delighted to welcome Usman Barber Noor, who is a practising immigration barrister and founded the Habeas Corpus Project, which is a law centre that operates on a voluntary basis and that challenges unlawful detention. Usman, very warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, well, it's a, it's a great pleasure for us to have you. First off, could we uh, please ask you to explain what the Habeas Corpus Project is all about? Uh, the Habeas Corpus Project uh, was started uh, several months ago in order to increase access to justice for immigration detainees. We challenge on a pro bono basis, which is free legal challenges to uh, unlawful detention. There is approximately 30,000 detainees in detention every year, uh, and we are now receiving referrals from people in detention to help them to get out of detention. You know, forgive me, Usman, I've got two questions at this early interval. The first one is, what is the link between immigration and detention? And the second one is, I've been hearing a lot about pro bono work. Now, I like you two as much as the next man, (laughs) but I don't know whether it's worth (laughs) making a career out of it. So can you just explain to us what that means? Right. The link between uh, immigration and detention is uh, when the government announces that they're going to cut the amount of immigrants, there has to be a mechanism for forcibly removing people because they're not necessarily going to leave of their own free volition. A lot of these people are fleeing from desperate circumstances are here because they're uh, facing persecution in their country of origin. Someone has to physically put them in handcuffs, force them onto a plane uh, against their free will and put them in a situation where they're going to be sometimes kicking and screaming and taken to a country from where uh, they they don't want to go back to. So that's the link between immigration and detention. Uh, Pro bono uh, is not always, um, you know, it it means, pro bono means uh, for the public good. Uh, In the legal sector, it means doing it on a voluntary basis. The reason we do it pro bono is because in 2014, the government cut significantly the access to legal aid. Now, as you can imagine, asylum seekers in this country um, who are fleeing from persecution, who are being detained, are not necessarily very wealthy people they can't afford private representation can i just pick you up if i can on this issue about the deterrent um uh, stopping people from coming to the uk and then applying to remain here do you think that that's a point of law or do you think it's politically motivated of course it's politically motivated there is a interest in keeping people away from this country to limit the amount of people coming to this country and that is a a politically motivated phenomenon so when you have uh, a political interest law then develops to 
suit that political interest. Every single legislation that has been implemented by this country relating to immigration has been a law that limits the amount of immigrants that can come to this country. Uh, and so the law fits the political agenda and it narrows the amount of people that can come to this country and it's at its highest in terms of the restrictions that it's ever been. The consequences of that are drastic for a lot of people. But in a way, Usman, it seems to me like a lot of these political parties are actually, especially the new ones, the ones that were formerly fringe parties, they're sort of capitalising on immigration in a way. I mean, it's literally alien versus predator, isn't it? Well, yes. And but what happens then is that they will implement a law that may seem a reasonable law so for example the restriction on bringing your partner to the UK your husband or wife uh, there is a restriction now placed that you have to be earning 18.6 thousand pounds a year to in order to bring your spouse to the UK now that may seem like a, a very reasonable uh, provision because you don't want poor people coming to the UK and you know relying on public benefits but then how do you interpret that law how does that pan out in reality you have individuals who are working incredibly hard on something little more than minimum wage, working 40, 50 hours a week, decent people, uh, who've never committed an offence in their lives, maybe earning £17,500. Now, the law takes a strict approach. If you're not earning £18,600, you cannot bring your spouse. Um, so you have people who have every right to be able to marry who they want to marry, who want to live with the people who they've married, who want to live with the children of the people that they've married. But these laws, which are premised upon the anti-immigration rhetoric, which has uh, been very pronounced in the last few years, now being implemented and are affecting hundreds of thousands of people. Can I just go back to uh, this point about uh, people who come to Britain to seek refuge? Do you think our law provides sufficient protection for those people? Yes, the law does. We have a very good legal system. Mm. If you actually um, apply the law correctly, I really believe that you know, the Geneva Convention, which states that those who are fleeing from persecution ought to be granted refugee status. There is mm. actually very good legal provision. What's lacking is the procedures and the bureaucracy and the accessibility of those laws. And that's where we're failing, I believe, as a country. One thing that you said has really struck a, a chord with me, Usman. So you're saying that if I went abroad, and I, or not me, a friend of mine actually, went abroad and met a girl and that he fell in love with, and then he tried to bring her back here. Mm -hmm. And if I was, well, not me, my friend was earning less <laughs> than £18,000, he would not be able to bring get, her get, over. Get a job, Billy. <laughs> get a job. Because yeah, that, no, that's correct. I, may have to, I mean, he may have to rethink... <laughs> Yeah. Some things. Yeah, well, ironically, you know, the whole debate about creating this threshold of £18,600 as a minimum income requirement was taking place at a time when um, Theresa May was also talking about preventing forced marriages. And the way that I interpreted this threshold was it does create a situation where you are limited as to who you can marry. So essentially, you are forced to marry a British national or a European national who don't have visa controls. How ironic forced to limit the people that you are allowed to fall in love with. You're forced to limit the people that you're allowed to share your life with. By the way, Billy, the Isle of Wight is not a foreign country. I mean, this is, is not it? about me. <laughs> this is not about me. Yeah. I mean, my love life is like a Mercedes Benz <laughs> in the sense that I don't actually own a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> 
So if you could have an audience with Theresa May, yes. who is responsible for a lot of the for for the implementation and the sort of creation of a lot of these uh, th- these policies, what would you say if you could personally speak to her? What would you say to her? First of all, as director of the Habeas Corpus Project, um, and I'm not the only person to say this, get rid of immigration detention doesn't make sense. It is not right to detain people. And when I say detain people, we're talking about prison conditions, locked in rooms. These are people who have not committed criminal offences. Mm. This cannot be on this country's conscience. Mm. This needs to be changed immediately. Sure. Could you do me a favour as well? Could you get her to change that awful spacesuit that she wears? If I have a moment with her, I will make sure she takes off her spacesuit. Thank you. <laughs> Usman, thank you so much for coming and sharing your invaluable insights with us today. Who says lawyers are all self-centered, greedy bastards? There are, it seems, some glorious exceptions to every rule. Thanks again. Well, I don't think I'm worthy of that, but uh, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we've got an email in today from Jeremy Tay from Queensbury, and he asks, I watched the election debates, and a lot of it was about immigration. Can you clarify what is the difference between a migrant, an immigrant, a refugee, and someone with leave to remain? Now, we're very lucky to have with us today Mr. Wisdom Okonkwo, who represents a prominent NGO working with persecuted academics, some of whom have refugee status in the UK. Wisdom, can you answer this question? A migrant is someone that has moved from one place to another, either temporarily or permanently. An immigrant is someone that usually moves borders, national borders, whereas a refugee is someone that is being forced to leave because they're being persecuted uh, in their home country, basically forced to leave their area to a place of safety where they can seek sanctuary. And what about leave to remain? What does that mean? Leave to remain is uh, essentially just a visa classification for someone like a refugee. So someone, you will have leave to remain, you'll have limited leave to remain within that, and you'll have indefinite leave to remain within that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but haven't the UK stopped allowing Syrian refugees from coming into the country or they have a limited intake? There's been plenty of times in the past, particularly uh, after the Iraq, uh, the invasion of Iraq, where uh, the British government, after about two or three years, where it was meant to have been a safe country to have lived in... Was that under the Labour Under the Labour government. And right. whilst they were trying to keep up appearances, there were still a lot of Iraqis trying to seek asylum. They were basically preventing them from entering, even though they had um, a very good case as refugees to to come to the UK and they're doing that very much with the Syrians now given that they were first very supportive and although they have extended the immigration rules for Syrians for another year which means that they don't have to apply for another visa they are still turning down refugee uh, applications for refugee status for Syrians and if just I mean just an interesting thing is that during the elections uh, in Iran in about 2008 2009 I think mm. they were letting through Iranian refugees within within a month because politically it was beneficial for the UK to be seen to taking in Iranians who were the from who were fleeing from the enemy which was the government of Iran so if there was a message that you can give to Theresa May um, with regards to you know immigration policies towards refugees policies towards asylum seekers what would that be well my first bit of advice would probably be for her to get a haircut but <laughs> after that uh, after that when it comes to refugee status it would, it would probably have a lot to do with with just taking consideration of the fact that 
that these people are living in incredibly difficult circumstances and that not to paint all with the same brush, which I think is, is, is common practice. And it shouldn't be politically motivated at all. There are needs of these people where they are with family. In most cases, I think about 95% of those that we do support have at least one dependent with them. And that, in many cases, some of the larger families can have five children and a wife. You know, we need to understand that these people in particular have got the biggest and brightest minds uh, in those countries and that they, their knowledge needs to be retained so that once the situation, if the situation improves in the, in the next few years in Syria or Iraq, that they can go back and help take the skills that they've learned in the UK or elsewhere and and help rebuild. So, And whilst they're here, they're also doing a massive amount to higher education uh, in the UK. Can you think of any other examples of people that you've worked with that have had some sort of really beneficial impact on the United Kingdom? In terms of in, in my work? Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 tons. I mean, um, not only not only in the UK, but I think the sort of the broader academic community, I mean, and also for the countries like Iraq. I mean, one of the projects that we were running at the time of about 2006 was that we were trying to get teams of academics that were otherwise isolated given that they were cut off in different parts of the country or had fled Iraq and were in different parts of the region and we were, we were establishing a program that essentially would try to give real benefits to Iraq in the long term and one of the things that they were doing particularly was uh, that really sort of was the most interesting thing I think out of all the research projects that they were running which was on cancer in, in southern Iraq essentially due to the, the load of depleted uranium and the warfare that was going on in southern parts of Iraq there was a high level of cancer amongst uh, its inhabitants. And one of the projects that one of our research teams were looking at was finding a plant that essentially could be planted in the southern parts of Iraq that would absorb the depleted uranium from the soil, which could then be harvested and therefore free the country and the, the area of, of, of cancer. And it, it, it's, I mean, I know you asked about the UK, but I, I think it, it's, it's those types of projects is, is exactly why academics are so vital mm. in our society. Well, Mr. Mr. Conquer, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, um, we're, we're very, very uh, happy that you came and we're very delighted for your insights. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you, Pleasure. Sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Muslims Are Coming. Please remember to share this podcast with your friends and family. Please also go to the trouble, if you can, of following us on Twitter at the MAC Podcast. Because at the moment, we have three followers. <laughs> One of whom is Billy's second cousin from Botswana. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a fake account, actually. He, he keeps asking me to send him £16 million into his Nigerian bank account. <laughs> We'd hope you join us again next time for some more The Muslims Are Coming. Goodbye. Bye. Ash, mm. on a serious note, if we were surplus to human requirements, what would actually happen to us? Well, as in, if we were in, if they put us on a spaceship? Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't really make the spaceship in the first place, would we? So no, I think we'll just drift into oblivion, really. <laughs> a bit like this podcast. <laughs>